Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, we'll open up with stories about Joe Butoriak, a friend of the Erie arts community that we lost recently. We'll catch up with musician and founder of Life Through Music, Corey Cook, and share our thoughts on the feature film, The Edge of Democracy, available on Netflix. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming. I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. And I'm Corey Cook, founder of Life to Music, also dispatch supervisor for United Parcel Service. All right, well, welcome. So we want to start off today by remembering a friend of the Film Society that passed on very recently, uh, Joe Butoriak. He and his wife, Betsy, have been mainstays of the Film Society scene since we launched. Joe, in particular, was a seat putter-upper, taker-downer <laughs> at the art museum when we were there. He liked to bring birthday cake on his birthday, if anybody can recall. I don't know, John, do you remember? And other people's birthdays. And other people's birthday cake for me. Yep. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he was, as Erica, as you said, they were from the beginning. Joe uh, was a super supporter. He was, when we had our series at the Erie Art Museum, film at the Erie Art Museum, he would be there before me all the time with the chairs already set up and things (laughs) already set up. And I'd be like, Joe, you know, like I probably said it for the first two years of the program. Like, Joe, you don't have to set these up. You know, they have people to set these, these up. And he's like, well, I wanted to come in and help out. And then at the end of the night, he would be the last one there tearing stuff down. I'd be like, Joe, I can take that stuff down. You already set it up. You know, he's like, he's that kind of guy and um, beautiful human being and uh, will be missed. I love talking about movies and TV series and stuff with Joe uh, always. I learned a lot about Joe, actually. Unfortunately, it made me feel like a bad friend, but I learned a lot about him in reading his obituary. I did not realize he was a fireman. Uh, I didn't realize he was a cook at the firehouse, which I think is so Joe. Yeah, I, I, I just, I learned a lot and I was really impressed. And I've been thinking about him a lot over the past few days and, and thinking about Betsy for sure, Betsy, his wife. They both were involved in theater. She's a a fabulous actress and, you know, he was right there alongside her too. But, you know, right now, if anyone's listening, that's part of our, you know, the film society scene, you know, she certainly is, uh, I would say, in need of lots of love and support right now. So we send our love to you, Betsy, as well. I became really friendly with Joe and, um, you know, I don't want this to go on too long or anything like that. Uh, obviously, you know, I loved him and Betsy very, very much. And um, there's a saying that 90% of life is showing up. And Joe was one of those people who showed up like all the time. And he was there. Erie needs more people like that, to be honest, who just show up and support because there is no film society and drama shop and those other organizations that Joe was an active member and, and part of the community to without people like Joe and Betsy Batoriak. And uh, it's it's not just a loss to to the film society and stuff like that, but it's a, it's a loss for the city. You need people like that. You will be sorely missed. Well said, Mike. I agree. In honor of Joe's wonderful sense of humor, <laughs> I will I will uh, transition us into our discussion with Corey Cook with a timely meme that I happened to see on Facebook 
where all of the timely memes live. Yesterday, June 7th, uh, was Prince's birthday. Prince, who's from Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of Prince and the revolution. Shout out to Purple Rain. (laughs) All right, everyone. So welcome our special guest today, Corey Cook, the founder of Life Through Music, teacher, a musician, a great guy all around. Corey Cook, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Corey, tell us a little bit about your background. Are you originally from Erie? Are you a transplant? I was born and raised here in Erie, not a transplant, <laughs> and uh, proudly uh, born and raised here. Um, I grew up on Sixth and Reed, which is the city's lower, lower east side. Pretty much been down on this side of town pretty much my whole life. Um, I never moved out of uh, town when going to college. I went to Edinburgh for a year. Um, but I stayed in town and kind of came back, but been a lifelong resident here. Excellent. And uh, when did you find music? I found music at age 14. So I'm 36 now. At age 14, I found music and that was through church. So growing up, my mom made us, I have one brother and two sisters. Um, she made us go to church every Sunday <laughs> and then every throughout the week. Pretty much three days out of the week, we had different events at church, whether it be choir rehearsal. I was on the usher board as well at church and just a bunch of activities. We had probably about 60 or 70 active youth at my church growing up. And so I grew up at Shiloh and I had a lot of kids that were my age that grew up with me at Shiloh. A lot of them who are still best friends to this day. Um, But I found music there and my mom made me go to choir rehearsal every Thursday and I hated singing. So the only way I can get out of singing was to learn the instrument. (laughs) <laughs> if you know anything about Shiloh, if you've been to Shiloh, um, music is a huge part of the experience every week. If you're on the drums, if you're on the piano, you have to be engaged. And we had a minister of music that was very engaging. Um, and he really was, he pushed us a lot. He was from Chicago originally. He went to uh, Fisk University, came up here. He had a ton of offers across the country to go play for um, some of the biggest artists and biggest churches. And he chose Erie. And he was kind of my first role model and example of a musician. And it was through Shiloh that I was introduced to music. That's awesome. Which instruments did you gravitate towards early? And what what is, um, you know, kind of your focus is now? I know you play all kinds of instruments, but, you know, where did you enter and what's your preference today? So I started playing the drums, which is still my preference. I can play the piano. I understand it. I can play it. If I'm around other piano players, I don't really call myself a piano player. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, I can play. I can get by on the piano. And I can play bass guitar a little bit as well. I understand that. And the good thing about music um, theory once you understand like an instrument like the piano, that theory applies to all kind of all instruments pretty much. So if you understand the theory uh, behind the piano, it applies to bass guitar, clarinet, scales work the same, um, how you construct chords, they all work the same. The only thing that's different is the mechanics of it. So instead of playing the piano, I'm playing the bass guitar like this, but I'm still thinking the same theory in my mind when I'm playing. And so I'll, the piano even though the drums is my main instrument, that's where I would rather be. The piano, I'm very fortunate I learned the piano because it opened me up to so many other instruments and so many other possibilities. You have a very uh, cool looking drum set. What, what uh, brand of drums do you use? I'm not a drummer, so <laughs> sorry for the basic question. Well, no, that's all right. So my acoustic drum set, I'm a huge fan of, uh, fan of Yamaha products. So even keyboards. So I use Yamaha keyboards, Yamaha drums for acoustic stuff. 
So, and I just recently purchased a Roland electric drum set, which is the Roland TD-50. It's the top of the line. It's the closest thing that you can get to an acoustic set that's electric. But we wanted to purchase it to use for live streaming purposes and for teaching purposes because it's so much easier to manage that if you want to do online lessons, if you want to do live streams and things like that. So that was the reason why we purchased that. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're getting into a little bit of the, the teaching side. So tell me about Life Through Music and how it came to be. So Life Through Music started nine years ago now. And my sister had a nonprofit organization called Life, uh, which stands for Living and Fulfilled Excellence. Early on, me and her had conversations. Hey, I want to start a music program. What do you think? And we finally agreed to start Life Through Music. And so I started at East High School back in, I think, 2012. I had two students. Uh, we had like a grant for a couple hundred bucks. We were able to get a couple drum sets. Um, I ended up talking to the school district. They let me use their band room after school. So I had a few students meet me after school and we just kind of built from there. And that first class, like I said, we had two or three. One was my son and one was two other ones were <laughs> friends from church. And then I grew by the end of that year, I had about 30 students. Oh, wow. Okay. And I kind of maintain that throughout the years. You've been around, you've seen the group of kids that I work with. They're a very close-knit group of kids, a very good group. And even some of the kids that have graduated now, they still come around and, and they're still mentors to this day. Yeah, they know their stuff. Um, you definitely have a, a good sense of community as well with you and your students, um, which you can tell right away, just spending any time um, with you guys, which is, you know, really cool. Um, so it started off a very small family affair, right? So um, you had an idea. How how did it grow? Like, was it word of mouth? Did you guys do any advertising? Was it a lot of online social media stuff? Pretty much a lot of online social media. You started a small business. I mean, you know, when it's when you first start off, you don't have a staff, you don't have a group of people to work, you know, and help out. So early on, it was just me. I was doing everything from taking pictures, doing videos, doing email blasts, planning events, running sound during the events. So pretty much um, doing everything. All in. Yep. <laughs> Over the years that we just stayed consistent. And I think that's the major piece of it. Um, I remember early on having a showcase and there only be about maybe five or six people there, but not letting that discourage, you know, me. I saw the progress the kids were making. I knew community would eventually support. And I think my second showcase, we probably had about maybe 20 people. Um, the district attorney showed up, Jack hmm. Denary. And so um, since he showed up, we've been, you know, very good friends ever since. And he's been very touched and moved by the way he's seen the kids progress over the years. And so just early on when we started, just having that that will to keep going, you know, even past seeing five, 10 people in the audience. And eventually we grew. We grew a pretty large support. We grew with resources. We made some investments over the years, smart investments, uh, great partnerships. And for a while before I started working for the Y, we partnered with the Y. And I would okay. house my program there. Um, I housed it in the school district for a couple of years and then ended up having conversations with Marcus Hackinson, migrated it to the Y. Eventually, um, you know, I, I was there for a couple of years. But yep, so that was it really. I mean, just 
grinding away, building <laughs> building relationships. So okay, so what was your original when you were first starting out? Kind of, you know, I mean, you don't have to give like a mission and vision statement, but I'm curious when when you were first starting. You know, what was your vision for the business? And talk about how life has grown so much since those early days. So initially, I was fortunate through my church, we always were able to get out of town. Like throughout the summertime, we would go to different events uh, in Philadelphia. We would be in Harrisburg, Pittsburgh. I got a chance to meet a lot of musicians during that time. Some who are playing for some of the biggest artists in the world right now. I got exposed to a lot of um, high level music tech, people who are working in the music industry. And that really inspired me because if I wasn't able to get out of Erie, I would have never saw that. And even being close to Cleveland, Buffalo, and Pittsburgh, I mean, Philadelphia is a totally different scene. Um, New York City is a totally different scene. People kind of get stuck in the the regional bubble uh, and there's so much more. And even uh, my trips back and forth to Atlanta, you know, being there. So just having that exposure and wanting to, I knew because I was exposed to that, if I exposed some kids to it here, um, they would have the opportunities to do whatever they wanted to do. Some, uh, if they wanted to, to go on and pursue music at a higher level, they would be prepared because I would be able to introduce them to industry standard software and hardware. And so that was always my my goal and my vision. And not just software and hardware, but also industry level people, connections, guys who have been working in the industry, because they had that that network, they would have the best possible chance to succeed. So that was my goal from the very beginning. So you're always looking at kind of the business aspects, which is, um, you know, the language of businesses can always be a struggle yeah. naturally for artists, right? Yeah. Um, we just want to create. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, did you always have an interest in in business or did you, you know, you mentioned you went to, to Edinburgh for a time, you know, did you study up on business as well? Or did you have mentors that, um, you know, you could lean on in the business that you had met over time for help in those areas? When I went to Edinburgh, uh, my major, and I was out there for, um, for a year. My major was sociology at the time. I knew I loved working with people coming out of high school. And that was kind of the thing to do was to go right to college. And so, you know, I went to college. It wasn't really for me. And I was working full time here in Erie. I was commuting back and forth to Edinburgh. So I wasn't really into it. And that kind of, you know, hampered some things for me. But towards the end of my college experience, um, that first year, I found I was having my first son. So then it was like, all right, now I have to really get into the job market, get into the job industry to see about finding a job so I can support, you know, my child. And so that's when I just kind of focused on uh, working at UPS. Okay. And UPS really has been probably my best teacher when it comes to business. I don't have any formal business training. I didn't take any course. I take that back Two, no, probably about three or four years ago, a guy by the name of Kurt Hirsch, he's um, over the entrepreneurship program over at Gannon. Okay. I had an intern from his program. She was coming in and helping out doing some intern work. And he said, Hey, if you want, you can sit in on some of the classes and for free. And so I was able to pretty much get an entrepreneurship class for free, which is really cool. Definitely grateful to Kurt Hirsch for allowing me to sit in this class. <laughs> So I did learn some things there, but a lot of it I learned just uh, at UPS. That was probably my best teacher when it comes to business. I started off working as um, just a regular union employee. Uh, I loaded, unloaded packages. Um, I did air department stuff, things like that. And then I was promoted to shift supervisor. So then I had to start managing a group of people and hitting production goals and not only managing a group of people 
I've managed them in a, a union environment, which is a little bit tougher than <laughs> like a regular environment. And so that has been really my best teacher because I have the type of time schedule in the structure that UPS has. I've had some very smart business managers that have really helped me and kind of been examples of leaders for me. Um, so I've seen different levels of leadership in the corporate world that has really helped shape my perspective when it comes to my work in the nonprofit side. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the greatest lessons I've learned from UPS when it comes to business and my own business is to be a good manager at anything, you should understand every aspect of what you're managing. And so for me to manage uh, life through music, which consists of marketing, pictures, videos, all those things, website, I learned how to build websites. I learned how to do pictures. I learned how to do video. So everything that you see as far as life through music goes, I'm pretty much behind a lot of it. Even at the events, I, I'm doing sound and so all of that stuff. Eventually, when I'm able to kind of sit back and have a staff, I'll be able to effectively <laughs> delegate different tasks and manage that group because I understand all the different aspects of what I'm managing. Yeah. And so it's been uh, very helpful for me when it comes to building the business because I've been able to build a lot of it and save a ton of money because I've been able to learn and develop the skills on my own. But even looking forward, um, once I'm able to kind of get that staff and get people around me, know exactly what I want and how to get it done. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about like where the life brand is now, because it's not just life through music, right? And so um, relationships have been a big part of like who I am, like, you know, kind of the success that I've been able to kind of have over the years. Life Through Music started with me pretty much, and I had an intern. And then over the years, um, you've probably seen that I've been able to kind of do some programming in Harrisburg and Asbury Park, New Jersey. For sure. And that's because of the relationships that I've built. And so I started a a satellite location uh, in Harrisburg, I think back in, must have been like 2016 now. And we started off doing music classes there, ended up meeting a, a a guy by the name of Rob Schof, who was a graduate of MIT in engineering department. Um, he was a teacher at Hack, which is the Harrisburg area um, community college. Very passionate about community, had the same heart um, as I had and connected with him. So we ended up, we talked about starting Life Through Tech. And so we were able to start a program called Life Through Tech based off that relationship. And what he focused on was building instruments, introducing kids to technology, Um, Not to just be consumers of technology, but also figure out how you can take your cell phone apart. How does it work? How does the inside work? Not just how do I turn it on and use it? They built instruments using uh, controllers called the Makey Makey kits. You can buy those and hook them up and, you know, you can wire it through uh, music production software. And we created instruments, you know, with bananas and everything else. Uh, And a lot of it was based off of the technology and the wiring that he already kind of knew how to do, how to conduct electricity. And then our knowledge of the music aspect of it and just kind of infusing the two. So that relationship has blossomed over the years. We've been able to do a lot of workshops across Erie, Harrisburg, and uh, in New Jersey. Now, Carla Hughes, another uh, person who I, who I started working with a couple years back um, here in Erie, a uh, great dance teacher one of the only dance teachers in the Erie School District, um, has the same heart, same passion uh, to help youth and help to uh, develop this, this community. Met with her and we started Life Through Dance. And we did showcases together and the kids would dance the showcases and we would you know do music. And it was just a, a community that was built. And so it kind of blossomed 
from life through music to life through dance to life through tech. So wow. kind of the, the three programs that we have running right now. How many so is students? life through film next? <laughs> sure. You guys are willing to help out. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just saying. Yeah. Listening to you talk about what you do, it's all about partnerships. Yep. It's about your relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's about kids and giving them exposure and opportunities to to explore the arts yep. i think it's fabulous let's Thanks. do it life through film yep how many young people would you estimate Corey, that um you know have gone through the program do you have a number do you even know um, an exact number no yeah. but uh, well over 300 for sure that's, that's so awesome well over 300. Yeah. And as Erica was uh, commenting on, I mean, the importance of networking, right? Like in filmmaking, networking is, is so important. Um, the opportunities that, you know, obviously you're giving lessons um, on networking, but you're also introducing them to industry people and they're learning the importance of networking, which is so important, right? And not really taught enough traditionally. That's such an important skill. And I think in, I'll say in a nonprofit sector, I don't really know too much in the business world, but definitely in nonprofits, I figured, I found out that you're only as strong as your network is. And so I had to develop a pretty broad network working in a nonprofit sector. And it wasn't, it was beyond just networking with other musicians. It was networking with film guys like yourself, politicians, everybody, uh, executive directors, um, everyday people. You just have to be able to really broaden um, that network. And there's people who have really helped um, behind the scenes that don't want any fanfare. They don't want any recognition, but they go to sleep at night knowing that they're investing in something that's helping better this community. And so to have people like that in the network has just really been just a blessing. And it's helped a lot of kids here and, you know, across the state of Pennsylvania and also in New Jersey. What can we do um, better as far as advice for the city and Mm -hmm. for other organizations in Erie? Do you have any, um, you know, kind of insight? Because you have worked with different groups and have different experiences. What advice would you give for organizations? I would say um, the egos have to be to be checked and it's not just eerie because i've you know i've worked with some people on projects in cities like harrisburg where the political climate is you know 10 times what it is here but the problem the issues are still the same issue is just the ego at the end of the day even though it's more political there it's still still egos involved i'm not threatened by sharing my knowledge things that i've learned along the way and if it can help you be better and no kind of further what you want to do. I have no problem with that. If you become better at it than me, I mean, that's, I'm fine with that. I look at it as, okay, well, he's gotten better. Now I have to step my game up a little bit. So it's almost like that, the healthy competitive part, you know, I'm a basketball player at the core. <laughs> so I'm very competitive. Um, I always try to share any knowledge that I have um, or any of the experiences that I've had. I, I share it um, and I, I treat people the way I want to be treated. And I think that goes a long way. And if the community could really develop that same type of spirit, I think we could 
take this thing as, as far as we want. Be more supportive of one another. I'm thinking like you posted, if you don't mind me quoting a Facebook post that you uh, recently put up, you said, I'm a black man. I build, I don't tear down other black men. All too often, we men find it easier to criticize each other instead of building each other up. With all the negativity going around, let's do something positive. Let's build ourselves up instead of tearing ourselves down. I thought that was uh, well said, sir, <laughs> for everyone, for everyone. Yeah, what were you thinking about when you wrote it? And that was like one of those things that was a copy and paste um, thing that was going around Facebook. Um, I did edit it because it was a lot longer. So I kind of shortened it up a little bit. There were some things that I took out. Um, but at the essence and at the core, that's pretty. That's really what I'm about. And I, I don't get involved in in drama and you know people who know me like you really won't hear anything bad said about me because I don't I don't talk bad about people and how you what you see is what you get from me I'm straight up I don't talk behind people's backs I think that's really the core and essence of who I am like I consider you a man of like positive action for sure Mm -hmm. Like uh, everything you do, we had uh, Charles Brown on earlier, and I feel the same way. Similar approaches with you and and Charles that you guys come from a positive place um, in everything that you do, and you know it's really refreshing and and inspiring. So thank you for that, for those words, for sure. A couple questions for you as uh, content creators. You know, artists were empathy machines. You know, content is king these days, right? We've got the internet, social media. What role do you see artists playing in these divisive times? You know, what do you think artists can teach society and our leaders today? I think if if they really listen, people who are in positions of power, the same stories and the same message have been, been said for decades. And I think probably one of the most powerful revolutions when it comes to like music and art has really been like the hip hop movement and how that's influenced culture around the world. The most, uh, has the most, uh, for lack of better words, kind of money behind it. I mean, it's the most influential from a money standpoint uh, and even from just like what you see that type, that standpoint too. And things that people rapped about in the early days of hip hop, like if you go back to the 70s and the 80s and even like the into the 90s when NAA and uh, the NWA they were out rapping and they were saying harsh things about, you know, police, police brutality. It was very harsh. It was very direct what they were saying. But what they're saying is things that are still happening today. Music and artists have always been on the forefront of trying to influence social change. They have. It's been a lot of progress made, but there's so much more work to be done. And so I really see uh, music as that voice always had, somebody had wrote, I don't know who it was, but music is like the universal language. I I truly believe that music can motivate people. It can make people happy. It can make them sad. It can make them think, um, reflect. And so music is is one of those tools. Art is the same way. Film and documentaries, they're the same way. They can really shine a light on injustice and, and other things. So just media in general is the tool that we have. It influences everything that we do. There was, my brother had preached a sermon years ago um, that whatever you let in your ears and in your eyes eventually will like penetrate your heart. I think that um, what you do, what you what you take in, it, eventually it will. And those, what penetrates your heart end up coming out as, it comes out as actions eventually. And so music, 
whatever, whatever you kind of put in, um, video, whatever you put in, I mean, all that stuff, it eventually comes out. Um, that's why I think music media is very, uh, very important when it comes to how we can tell the story of where we are socially, economically, and where we need to go. Very well said. You know, as a teacher yourself, obviously having youth involved, right, and using their voices to communicate through the arts is also uh, really important as well. And, um, you know, seeing more familiar, familiar faces through our media is also really important. Um, have you seen in your mind, do you think uh, we're making progress in those areas? as far as um, giving more people voices than, uh, you know, the usual suspects? You mean like kind of locally, nationally? Yeah, locally and nationally, actually. Um, yeah, let's say locally. Do you think um, we have some work to do there? I, I think locally, yeah, there's um, some work that needs to be done. Um, I went down to the protest on Saturday, and I think one of the important things for the minority community is to be able everybody tells kind of their version of a story. So you can have a story, you'll have four or five different people who can see the same story, but they'll have a different version of it. Well, I think it's important that as we as a minority community start to develop and foster people who can tell the story from our perspective as well. I think that's an important part of it. I do think that more people are starting to get a voice locally. I do think that um, they're starting to be like kind of a change of the old guard a little bit. So I do think there's being progress made, but I also, I firmly believe that we do need people um, that can tell the story from the minority perspective as well. And I, I don't think that's something that's really being done here. And I think we do have I mean, Kevin Flowers really is the only person of color I can think of offhand right now. And he works for the Times. And there's, I mean, Jonathan Skinner, I think he's working for WICU. But even just to have like a media, kind of like a dedicated media company that can tell minority stories, minority perspectives, mm -hmm. um, I think that would be beneficial as well. Yeah. Marcus Atkinson's doing he has a, a bit of that. And that's, that's great to see, but to start oh, video stuff too, as well. Podcasts. I, and I, Marcus is doing a lot more than just pod, not diminishing what he's doing, but I want to start seeing some videos, you know, circulating around. I want to see something with like a professional polish that, that we can kind of gather another perspective uh, because I think that's important. Cause one thing that I try to do, you can get lost in a rabbit hole of, of media very quick. And so one thing that I try to do, is I try to look at both sides of the argument. Even though I don't agree with probably 95% of the things Fox News says, there's times where I listen to Tucker Carlson and other people to kind of see what their their argument is, their perspective, what their perspective is. There's some things where I can, you know, agree and we can have common ground on. A majority of it, I just, I don't. <laughs> and then there's the other side, you have CNN, MSNBC. And so I try to watch and get those perspectives too. But I think it's important to have an overall perspective of the world. And then you kind of find that where that truth is at. I think people now, there's so many sound bites now being played, social media. So you're constantly getting sound bites. You're getting pretty much one perspective and you're not trying to listen to the other side because you're so focused on what your side is saying, if you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever you are. I'll just like reinforcing your own opinion, right? Right. Yep. I think it's important just to have that broad perspective and to respect people's perspectives. And you might not necessarily agree with it, but at least you kind of know where they're coming from. And then you can kind of base 
your opinion and your own truth and experience. Man, that's such a good point. I, I wish more of us would, uh, you know, communicate, right? It's It just comes down to communicating with one another yeah. instead of um, putting walls up and just living in a echo chamber. Really good point, man. Well, hopefully, um, you know, we can all keep fighting the good fight and um, more young people opportunities like you are to share their voice and be heard. And um, from all of us, I want to thank you for joining us and for everything that you're doing. Um, definitely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I'm a big fan of, you know, your work. And uh, it's always been a pleasure to kind of work and talk, you know, with you over the years. You know, we don't get to catch up much. But when we do, it's always, you know, positive vibes and everything. So I always appreciate that. I think Erica and I will figure out a way we can work together in the future. (laughs) I think so. I think you've inspired me, Corey. And actually, just listening to the last point that you made, I -hmm. think to myself, hearing all of the everyone's opinions and everyone's truth is very important. Maybe a program where... We do life through film and we focus on media literacy because that's probably one of the biggest problems in people communicating is being able to decipher the information they're receiving and not really even knowing, is this true? Because I agree, you know, finding the right truth, but the truth, some things can be, you know, your truth, my truth, there are, they are different, but some things are factual and some things are not. And helping kids become literate and be able to decipher what, what is a fact and what is not a fact or understanding that you're watching media that has a bias. So Mm -hmm. you have to try to remove that bias and then see what they're actually telling you. Let's do a program about that. That's what you should do. Yeah. (laughs) Film literacy, media literacy. There you go. That's it. I think that would be excellent. Very beneficial too. I think everyone should take this class. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Corey, thank you again so much. Uh, Corey Cook and the website is lifeinpa.org, correct? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Corey. Yep. Cheers. Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk about what we were watching this past week. I hate to, I, I don't think in the summer I'm going to say what did you watch this weekend because our precious summer days, I would not expect someone to spend their weekend in front of the boob tube. So I still watch, watch a lot of stuff. I know you do, <laughs> but you're you're a different kind of person, John. You're not like the sunbather, really. No, you're no. not the gardener. You're not the kayaker. No. You're not- <laughs> So it's fine. Um, But a lot of people are. So anyway, we wanted to find out what did people watch this week? And I'm sure we'll hear more uh, throughout the week on our post on Facebook. But um, Mark Nicolucci watched Rami on Hulu, one of John's favorites of the year, right? Yeah, for sure. And Stella Ruggiero, she watched an interview with Katrina Balf. That really inspired her about women in the film industry. And here we, here we have Outlander. It's it's like comes up in every podcast episode. I don't know how it's possible, but Katrina Balfe, the beautiful goddess that Mike absolutely adores. She plays Claire (laughs) in Outlander. And then, you know, Mike and I, yes, we watched an interesting movie called Frantic Hmm. with Harrison Ford. It's an old Roman Polanski. Oh, it's a Roman Polanski. From yeah, from the uh, mid to late eighties, I think it's eighty eight to be exact. And uh, he, uh, it's Roman Polanski doing uh, his own version of a sort of a Hitchcock story. Yeah, 
Cool. John, I think you'd like it. It takes place in Paris and it has a very sexy French woman as his kind of <laughs> companion throughout the movie. It's good. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a Polanski I haven't seen. Erica, what, what else well, did you Well, I also, yeah, and I watched um, Filthy Rich on Netflix, the series about Jeffrey Epstein. I've, I've listened to the there's two two podcasts that have come out about this. I've listened to them both. This <laughs> this series, this you know limited series, is based on I think the first one. Yeah, I mean, if you're curious, I would certainly watch it. It's um, you know it's it's not really surprising. It's just kind of another story about a rich dude who uses his money to get whatever he wants, and in his case, it's young women. Hmm. Uh, so it's a it's the first story that I've really heard. And I know there's some where where the predator basically has a a female companion who be, who's who brings him the girls and actually participates in the uh, in the abuse, which is very very disturbing. Unfortunately, a, f- a somewhat familiar tale. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah, we, we keep hearing these. Mm-hmm. Um, Erica also say that Alyssa, one of our uh, regulars at Film Grain, also watched Rami, which is awesome. Oh, cool! I watched. I don't know if you guys have heard of Beloved, um, but it's a Toni Morrison. Morrison. Did you guys watch it? Have you seen it before, Mike? Yeah, I, I could only find it on Netflix rental on DVD, and the video quality was at times atrocious. Oh, no, but um, really, like it's a o- Oprah's in it um, with Danny Glover, and it really—I was quite surprised. Like a lot of the material, I mean, there's like infanticide, and uh, there's a lot of dark, strange things that happen, and it really felt like. I didn't look up the budget, but it really felt like a low budget indie, like a passion project of Oprah's. And I was really kind of impressed by it. And I also saw The Abyss, which uh, I haven't seen in forever. Ju- <laughs> I it, think we, we told just, you about yeah, that. We, we just, just watched that. It. Yeah. Did you? Okay, maybe that's why I watched it. I brought it up in this segment, probably. Then <laughs> I thought it helped well. I was just flipping through HBO Max now, uh, as you guys were, and it must, I saw that and I was like, oh, it's leaving in July. I better better watch that. So, yeah. And I haven't finished it yet, but um, I have one episode left in David Simon's The Plot Against America. Is that, that's a limited series? It it's is. Just it's just a, six. It's not a documentary. Just six episodes. Yeah, it's a. Fiction. I read the book years ago. I'd be interested to see how the. Um, how is it? How it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know it was a book before. I mean, it is. It's not a knock on it, but it is so on the nose for for today. It's I just like. like that's also a uh, growing trend. A lot of these stories about the end of the world, and it's like, oh, that, yeah, that really rings true. <laughs> it's yeah. not an end of the world. The, the novel, the book wasn't an end of the world book. It was a, it was a cautionary tale more than anything else. And it just sort of did uh, sort of that alternate parallel in history. And I'm sure that the series is doing that same thing, but about just uh, a buyer beware of nationalism and, uh, yeah, and the you know the the concerns about not asking questions and not confronting authority figures. Yeah, it's about if America did not enter World War II and instead decided to sit out. Yeah, and it plays 
heavily on nationalism, as Mike said. I mean, it's very interesting and um, troubling and familiar, and familiar <laughs> unfortunately. And speaking of familiar. Speaking of familiar. Let's talk about Brazil. All right. Brazil. Well, I, Brazil. <laughs> Brazil. Olé, olé, olé. Not ter- Terry Gilliam. Yes. Not Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Yeah. But in real life, Brazil. Um, so, yeah, my pick this week was um, the new documentary, The Edge of Democracy. It's on Netflix. And it's about the young democracy in Brazil. In 1988, the military regime was uh, replaced and they held their first presidential popular ballot election in 1989. And the filmmaker, Petra Costa, who um, directed this film and also narrates it, she was born in 1983. So she narrates this, she interweaves her personal connection um, of her family and herself through the story of her country during this time. Revolution is definitely in this filmmaker's blood. Uh, her parents fought against Brazil's military dictatorship and they were in hiding for, I believe it was a decade in about Southern America. A de- decade, Mike? Yeah, about a decade. They were both imprisoned. Um, many of their fellow organizers were tortured and killed. Petra is named after one of their leaders. Um, for me and why I love her style so much is you really feel her emotion and love for country and its people. I think it bleeds over in every frame of the film. Uh, I mentioned last week that I really love this style and I I don't think you get that type of feeling with every filmmaker, especially um, documentary. I think it's hard to pull off. So the edge of democracy shows the fragility of a democratic system. And I think it's a clear warning and a parallel to um, those of us living in similar structures around the world. I think there's something that Petra said near the end that I wrote down that I, in hindsight, it really rather rattles me. (laughs) She said, fragile democracies have one advantage over solid ones. They know when they're over. Mm -hmm. Yes. That line was, poof. Yeah. She sets the story also. I'll just a couple more notes and then turn it over to you guys. Um, She goes back to the imagery of the presidential residence, a a vacant building with the doors wide open. Um, She returns to that with this kind of floating camera, as if to say, I took it as, you know, who's going to enter the building. So that's my upfront. I'm curious what you guys thought of the edge of democracy. (laughs) I, you know, through, whenever I'm watching a movie, especially if I watch it twice, like I did with this one, I also am kind of seeing it maybe through the filmmaker's eyes a little bit, but, and I thought she was fabulous. What I appreciated about what she did was she's right there with Lula and Dilma and listening to their conversations with other people. And she seems to have cameras everywhere. Like, when Lula was tr- when Lula was going to turn himself in to the to go to jail, she seemed to be in every car and every exit. Like she had, I mean, she probably brought some footage together um, from other people. I don't know how she could have like had cameras at every potential exit, yeah. but she seemed to be everywhere that 
you needed to be to tell the story. And it was so hectic. They had so many, I mean, it was incredible to get a, a look inside Brazilian politics and the Brazilian, you know, government uh, working because it made me feel like how austere and stuffy the United States and is. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I feel like we're I feel like we're not. And then you see the Brazilian parliament or, or how you ever, I can't remember what you call it in, in Brazil, the house, the upper house, the lower house, mm -hmm. um, the Congress. And they're like screaming and waving and hugging and kissing and like throwing things and breaking out in fist fights. And it's kind of like, maybe if we just let our politicians just get it all out there on the floor instead of being like really passive aggressive and really boring and direct and no it's you know that one time of course i you know don't really think it's a great idea to yell at the president while he's making a state of the union address or something like that however when that when john when he shouted out you lie to obama that's the no. kind of stuff that happens every day all the time and you have to get up to a microphone to make your vote and there's somebody right here going uh-uh nope nope and it's like, wow. To, so to get in there, like as a filmmaker, you've got a camera, you've got a crew, you're getting sound and it's so hectic. She, you know, she felt at ease, I guess. I mean, she probably was a bit terrified sometimes, but then she'd chase people down to try to get interviews and, yeah. you know, they're kissing her on. It's just the cultural differences were fascinating. They just seemed like much more uh, expressive people and it made me feel like we're very um, reserved in America, <laughs> in our government, which is a complete opposite of what we see right now in a lot of our political movement and our political conversations are not very reserved. And I think it's time to, you know, we need to find the, the intersection between the two, I think, because I enjoyed watching the emotional politics and I thought she was, she did a great job capturing that. So I was, oh, go ahead. I'm looking at Mike and he's- Yeah, like, I know. Mike's Mike's ready to raise back. I'm, I'm letting her talk. <laughs> what is, Mike, what are your initial- um, Well, yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head first with, uh, it's hard to do documentary and have it be expressed. On top of it, she is covering a lot of ground. There's a lot. There's a lot. To, to explain, to give you the, uh, the exposition that she gives you and for, and she doesn't excellent 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 job of just laying it out so you understand the historical significance of what is about to transpire through the next three quarters of the film i would say i i think that there's also something to be said for i don't think she's just focusing necessarily on the politicians she's focusing on the people mm -hmm. and uh, what is become what becomes abundantly clear just almost through color whether it's you know the red of the sort of the the, the proletariat union class and then the uh, then the yellow and the green of the uh, nationalistic you know mm -hmm. and 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 there is there is a racial dynamic to this as well which you know it, I had a lot of questions about that when I was watching this because she doesn't really make a big she doesn't really call out racism yes she does Actually, but she, she, she does say it but she doesn't it's it's more show don't tell I think is her approach right but and but and i was trying to i wanted to draw some conclusions about what she was saying and i think maybe what you're saying john is it was show don't tell but i i didn't really draw any solid conclusions from that so i'm curious about your she does have a she throws a line she throws a line in the middle of the film about it and uh 
it, it's 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 in passing, but it's just she is. Focused. Well, what is she saying? Like, what's, what's her focus personally? I felt like it was more class. class. It was more yeah, a conversation right. about class. That's what I thought. It seemed a lot more about class because she's saying elites mm -hmm. and workers. And then, of course, with elites, you have the well. When he takes the uh, when he takes the office, Lula, you know, she talks. She she throws in the line that it's just like he brings in a new cabinet, and it's all white. Well, yeah, and she does. You're right. It's mostly show don't tell. But she, and it's on top of the uh, sort of the MO, or the man on the street stuff that she is doing too. She is showing you through that a distinction between the two people and she's not I don't think she's doing it with the broad stroke and saying it's all one way and it's all the other way but she's letting you know that it's like hey there's this is where this majority is and this is where the majority of this class or you know from this party is and yeah she's, she's right. letting you see it yeah I mean think of um yeah I guess just to give our listeners a little so you know there was this military regime that was in charge of the country right it was a dictatorship mm -hmm. and then you had lula who we've referenced um who was a steel worker like a union guy and he led strikes in like the late 70s against the dictatorship and that's where it kind of plays in with uh, her family and stuff and like then, that and people he, followed him right because he saw it was something like there's 400 members of Congress, and only two of them came from the working class. So basically, um, you know, he lost three elections in a, in a row, like he kept running for president, yeah. he didn't want to get into politics, but he saw that the working class, the people were not being represented in this situation. So uh, Petro compromises. That's a, he, this made, is a, this he made he made compromises. Yes, this is important. The, the compromise. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I have anything that I can possibly. I'm not a political scientist, obviously, and this is probably the hard thing where it's just like if one side is operating off of good faith and the other side is clearly, clearly not. Yeah. The PNB. I, I don't know how to say it in uh, Portuguese. Right. They were, you know, clearly just sitting in wait. But working in the system, like you said, Mike, compromise. I mean, he ran three times and he could not win, right? So the one the one time when he, once he won, yeah, he let to, he had to let some people in, into, you know, kind of his, his movement, his cabinet. Yeah, I mean, he had the, once he became president, can you just imagine like, and I really got this sense through her experience because the first time she voted was when she was able to vote for Lula, you know, like the hope in that moment of, you know, under him, they had the lowest unemployment ever. He, he had like um, an 87% approval rating as the president. That's like unheard of. Right. Um, he did a family assistance program. Yeah, family I mean, assistance program. He had a UBI, like... Um, he, and that's what a lot of the people on the street were saying. I was raised by him or, you know, because they've got the chance to go to school. They, you know, they got all of that through his programs, which prior to the military dictatorship, there was a, a communist government that was going to give all, the, like break the land apart and just give land directly to people. And that's when her family actually left. Mm -hmm. They were like, we're not... They were going to leave, but then the military coup to happened. Stop them, right? And, that, and then I, all of this was kept coming back to. There's going to be like it's all a coup. Like this is not an impeachment. Like all of the the times they've had turnover in the government or in the government system, it's all been 
quote unquote coup. It's never been a polit like a, a voter driven change. Right. I think this is on, on a big picture level, taking a step back. I think this is a big thing that it's at the end of the day, if you follow party as opposed to an ideal, because at the end of the day, what Brazil really mm -hmm. has a problem with is they are following party at this point. They are so they are so fractured. And 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 this is the concern for the US as well, because it does you know, you hear a lot about uh the right, the left. Republicans, Democrats, and liberals, it's, conservatives. It's football. Right. It, but what we don't talk about and we don't what we don't go back to a lot of times, and I'm not saying not saying that it's, you know, religious tech, but we don't go back to the text. We don't go back to the Constitution and all the amendments and everything. And we don't talk about it the way that we probably do. We probably we need to. Well, and this is kind of why I brought up media literacy before. I was watching that and thinking it the whole time. And now all of these conversations about what is like what ideas are fueling what parties and what information is fueling people's opinions on racial injustice in our country, it's because there's a blind faith in the party. It's like, well, if this person says it, then it must be true, you know, and that's right. not the case. Like they clearly, and I say they, so the, in the Brazilian government after Dilma. Who's the first woman president. First woman president. In the successor. She's the successor of Lula. Of Lula. And her, and, and she and Lula were certainly close. I mean, you could tell they were quite close. Yep. Um, and she goes on an anti-corruption. That's kind of her her thing, right? Right, to, and to, then she's which taken, backfires. Which backfires because she ends up being impeached because they say that she's part of this corruption. They they basically kind it, of turn it around on her and say, "Well, you're corrupt, so you get out of here." It backfires because because she was she was PWDM. I don't yeah. know whatever that was. They were right, the um, right wing party. It's, it's the a right wing party. It's a it was job. all bribes. It was all like oil companies and business executives basically saying, these are the people we want in government and then getting the people into government. And then the people who are in government saying, by the way, you need to do this. This is the person that, I mean, they were, con they were doing it all. And that is why they had to get her out of there because they needed to bring in somebody who's going to do what they want. And there's another problem in all of this. Not because she was impeachable. There's another problem in all of this, too, that if you go and you look at Moro and stuff like that, the fact that in Brazil... Moro is a right... He's he, the right-wing party he's the prosecutor. prosecutor slash judge. Because you yeah. can be a prosecutor <laughs> and a judge. Crazy. Well, apparently. That's a huge problem. That is a huge problem because yeah. he's impartial and he was found to be or you're supposed to be impartial, but he was found to be quite partial. I mean, he had an agenda. Now yes, I'm certainly like, and, and by the way, Moro one month ago, is just, he just stepped down. Right. He's going into the private sector. Yeah, what you guys are commenting on. So there's no, the trial, the impeachment trial, they pull Lula into it and they focus it all on like an apartment that they have no proof that he was gifted this apartment, but they just, just, um, they play the media and they play social media and they play the public and just the optics of bringing in Lula and calling him corrupt over and over and over right. again, even though in the trial, which is a complete sham, as Erica was saying, it's just Lula sitting across from this prosecutor that's also going to be the judge and saying, Lula saying, this is all bullshit. Show me, show me the proof. If this is a trial, show me the proof of what I did. And there's never any proof shown, but never. it changes the narrative. 
No, it, it's it's so scary to watch Brazil's government and now their president, Bolsonaro. Bol- Bol- Bolsonaro, her, Bolsonaro. Yeah. Oh my God. Right at the end where they're showing him being elected and literally he's like making a gun, like a the double the buddy, feature gun. The buddy Jesus, right. you know, gun symbol. And that's like his signature look. And then people are holding guns, like not even real guns, like drawn guns as a representation of support of this president. And all I could think of was fired. And like that same yeah. gun hand shape is exactly what fucking Trump did on The Apprentice. You're fired. Yep. And it's like the same hand motion. And to, to show that this is a problem, just this week, actually th- just this weekend or the weekend of January 7th, whenever, <laughs> uh, trying to get that right. but June. June, excuse me, June 7th. They ha- Brazil has stopped uh, sharing mm-hmm. their data for the uh, coronavirus oh, yeah. information. That yep. was a direct... Uh, that comes from the. That's an order from the direct top. That is. That will have. That will have an impact internationally to yeah. not have that data shared. They were at the second highest number of cases in the world, and it came from the president himself. Yeah, they've removed all the historical data from their health websites. They're not going to publish numbers anymore. Uh, I mean, other things against this president. You know, he has the mass deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, um, which has been predicted to be at an irreversible tipping point right right now. Um, Also, police violence under this president has increased by 20%, like in Rio de Janeiro. To bring it, the filmmaker, uh, when she released this film and was nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary, President and his family and other members of the government went and smeared her and called her um, an anti-Brazil activist, a scumbag, a criminal, among other things. I mean, you know, like other filmmakers, Mike, I know, you know, for sure, other documentary filmmakers, I'm thinking like, um, uh, what's his name in Iran? Uh, Jafar Panihi, I think is his name. Um, You know, he's been arrested. You know, I worry about um, these filmmakers and their safety. I mean, like, really, they are risking themselves by by putting this out there, but it's so important, the role that they play. Well, they're they're capturing history. And of course, if you have your own version of history that you're trying to make, as Bolsonaro does, someone who's telling the opposite side of the story, I mean, don't they say, like, this is the age old thing, like, history is written by the people who win or something like that. Right. Of course, Bolsonaro doesn't want her to tell her story because it makes him look like an illegitimate president. It makes him look like the most corrupt person of all and under the most misguided influence of thinking that the United States is the is the paragon of of what they should be doing as a country. Meanwhile, we're trying to say as the United States, we're the number one democracy in the world, but we kind of look like you and you're not even claiming to be a democracy anymore. <laughs> Or they are, but you know what they're trying to say. And what I think she, Petra points out at the end of the movie, you think you're a democracy, but really you're an oligarchy. And that is families. Families own, they own the earth, they own the sky, they own banks, they own politics. It's all about family lineage. And that's that we're still in that world. And I'm sorry, but Mike was the one who said to me the other day, Don Jr.'s coming up. Right. It's like, no. No. Maybe no. 
I'm like, if anything, Ivanka is probably the best candidate, but Mike said she's probably likes her kids too much to. But either way, but right? Either way, it's or Jared scary. or who, whoever, you know, it's like. There might yeah. be, and by the way, now that I'm thinking about it, that might be, there might be a sort of a very like subtle message in the cinematography of the film uh, in the shot when you're going through and there is the empty chair. Maybe it doesn't matter who's necessarily there because there's parties, there's powers that be behind the chair that are clearly manipulating and guiding the machinations of the Brazilian government. That it right. doesn't, that all the, just like you would call somebody an empty suit, it's an empty chair. And Mike, that I think it's a great point. And I think really um, the point I get from it is this isn't just a Brazil story. I mean, there's varying degrees of it, but literally, you know, the image when they built up the wall and they had protesters yeah. on both sides of the wall, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, you've got the red and yellow there. You've got Brexit where it was like, what red was leave and blue was the stronger in. In the U.S., you've got the red and blue states. I mean, the whole scoreboard and performative nature of the impeachment that Erica was talking about, it's all just like show, you know? It's all just bluster. It, it, it really, at a lot of points, it has me like wondering, is democracy really just a show? <laughs> Not to get back to the whole like coronavirus response and the racial justice things that are going on right now. But, you know, I feel like, and I've said a million times, I'll say it one more time here. When you're in, when your country is in a pandemic and your Congress, your leaders decide to give $4 trillion to Wall Street, to the bankers yeah. and decide to say, nope, it, everybody stay home but we're not going to cover small businesses and we're not going to cover the workers. To me, watching this movie, it was like, who is who is benefiting from democracy? Is democracy really a success, you know, in, in the current form, <laughs> you know? It's a psychological construct that we all live in. It's, it's the way that we create a safe environment around ourselves in our mind. Because if we don't have something... <laughs> then it's chaos and people don't want chaos. So they say, I will accept this as, as the structure that I, that my life fits within because otherwise I can go out and be a survivalist in the woods, not talk to anybody, not need anything, not have any commerce, not transact completely self, you know, be self-sufficient. Most people can't do that. The world is just full of too many people. So if you have all of these people, you need systems in order to keep them safe, in order to help them get food. It's, we have grown to need a government. So we need a structure, but the, but the structure just is still so, um, it's not immune to Corruption, the egos, the power, the egos, the corruption, the power, people's need for people's need for um, praise, you know, that feel like clearly, you know, someone like Trump loves being praised. He needs that. And it needs like, it. You, yeah. Grow up, you know, write in a journal and, you know, <laughs> self-reflect a little bit and praise yourself because that's what we tell everyone else to do. Right. We give, there's industries built on trying to figure out how to get Mike Berlin to feel good about himself without having someone 
tell him that he's okay. That's a whole world. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have a president who can't do that, you know? Right. So yes, the government is, either, it, is in, it is not infallible. It will always be susceptible to base human uh, needs and power trips and all of this stuff. Brazil just is flailing because they don't have a solid historical, like they haven't had a democracy work for right. 100 a years. Like a couple yeah, of decades, they, right? Yeah, they've just been flopping around from one political system to the other. And yeah, that, that's not going it's to, a, it's a fragile democracy. And it always comes back to one thing, education. If you keep people, if, you know, if you keep people sort of in the dark about things, and uh, it's then, and you sort of, you deny them a, a sort of degree of education, a level of education. This is a good point. Then, then that's why that propaganda can work. And when you don't have a history that's shared, you can, it's hard to get people of different generations to get on board with each other. I thought a fascinating scene was when they were, she had, she was in a city square and some of them were like yelling, you know, she's great and lock she's her up <laughs> and she's awesome. And then you have this other guy come in. He's like, we need a military dictatorship. This is my grandpa. He grew up in military dictatorship and he'll tell you just how good it is and how much we need it. And the guy behind him's like, <laughs> what are you talking? What about? are you talking about? You know, so you have, you don't even have generations that can tie in this idea that yes, our democracy is great. It works. And you don't have a school system, like exactly like Mike said, that's saying democracy has been the pillar of our society for a hundred years, 200 years. Let's learn about it. What's the history? Let's, we don't, there's none of that in Brazil because they don't have it. You'd be, you'd have to take like a Brazilian studies course in like fourth grade to get everything that you need to know about the history. Yeah of your government where in the u.s it's very simple it's like this has been our pledge of allegiance for 250 years or whatever yeah and it the, the effort's not difficult right like in the first hour of this film i feel like i learned so much about brazil right it's like yeah. if everybody took just a little time yes we're just so, you know, we're in our, we're in our American box. Honestly, I don't think. But Brazil's in their Brazilian. Everybody's everyone's in their box. box. Right. Except that Bolsonaro wants, you know, to fillet friggin' Donald Trump, apparently. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me, did you catch it where they're saying the, the, the right-wing party said something about not wanting to add to the restrictions on human slavery and i'm like wait a second there's human slavery going on in yes. brazil yeah still mm -hmm. massive yeah oh my god brazil china um a lot of still south uh south, southeast asia still has a lot of this problem india um yeah, yeah. so still, sla so, still slavery in this world so abolishing yes. slavery i mean is that where does that fall on the list of things that so, a government should- So long as it is beneficial to those in power, um, there's yeah. not interest to change. Yeah. That's... Which is what uh, Lula and Dilma ran up against. Well, my heart <laughs> goes out to the Brazilian people because there's a lot of them I mean, and they seem to have a pretty, like, 
I just was curious what their um, what their racial um, what their racial eth- ethnic mm-hmm. mix is. And actually, you know, most their half of their population is white and half is mixed. They say. Hmm. So I, I don't know what i guess white and black mixed maybe it must be because only but only seven almost eight percent of their um population is black what's the poverty rate if you can see it there i'm curious how the uh wealth inequality breaks down alongside white versus Layla's are like yeah very well around the world i i don't have that um The thing that's interesting about like the COVID spread there, it is a little different because um, poor populations are in the high uh, concentrations of people. So um, the poor population, which actually I guess is similar to the U.S., you know, the poor among us um, are hit hardest by the pandemic. Yeah. But for them, it's in their big population centers, um, which is kind of a different mix. But well, so would you guys say, what did you guys think uh, overall? I know it's not, um, you know, a typical film to recommend, but I thought a little outside perspective. It's an important film and it's an important film for so many reasons. And then on top of it, just like you don't, it's, we don't want the world to be, um, sort of re reenacting what's happening in Brazil in the wave of nationalism there. And then on top of it, the, the impact that Brazil, particularly with the deforestation of the, the Amazon, which is going like, that is the world's, listen, that's the world's. That's our lungs. That's our, that's our, that's our oxygen tank. Yeah. And the, uh, people need to understand that these things are connected and that there is unfortunately a very dangerous domino effect of all of these things that happen. That's a good point, Mike. Yeah, we can just say Brazil's crazy and just ignore them, but um, you're not going to be able to ignore it. As a first female president, what an incredible person. Um, Tortured, endured torture for weeks um, at the hands of the military government because she was an activist. Tortured. Okay, and this person now is so passionate about about the government that she wants that she works so hard and she and she actually gets there to to make that democracy that she fought so hard for oh my god yeah do you so inspiring i'm recalling now in the impeachment when she got a chance to talk do you remember that and she basically said like i've been through torture this bullshit that you guys are putting me through is nothing (laughs) yes Because it's true, it's incredible. And she, and the, when they're driving away in the in the car, and she compares herself to a character in a Kafka novel, and it's like you know, the trial, the trial, she, she, the uh, trial. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, she has the wisdom and intelligence and cultural depth to compare herself to a character in in literature. I, I just, I don't know. When I think about this other Bolsonaro guy who's like, you know, ban all homosexuality, it's like, yeah, read a book, buddy. Just, you know, like get get yourself educated if you're going to be the person speaking in front of uh, in front of the world. But you don't, he doesn't care. Just like Trump does not care. I don't think yeah. he's ever picked up a book. He's kind of had verbal oh, diarrhea and somebody's true. written it down and he then put it in bindings book. and- 
<laughs> right. Pick, picked we up know a he's win that one. We know he's picked up a book. Good. Has he read it? And no, seen. <laughs> oh, God. That was so embarrassing and awkward. <laughs> But yeah, there's parallels, right? Like um, before he was elected, I remember she goes into his office and he's he has like on the wall pictures of like military dictators. And in a very Trumponian fashion, he's just like, oh, great people. You know, these were great, right. great men, great men. Mm-hmm. It's like. I don't think, um, I doubt that Trump would ever put up pictures of other leaders in his office and then say, look at these great men. They inspire me. No one inspires him. <laughs> Right. It's all about him. him. All right. Well, that's The Edge of Democracy, which is on Netflix. We recommend you check it out. So looking ahead to next week's episode, Mike, you have a film recommendation for us. What do you have? Okay. So this week, uh, I'm going to recommend, and uh, obviously there's a lot of streaming services right now that have lowered their, um, their paywall so that we can sort of go in there and watch uh, some select films. And I'm going to recommend, if people are up for it, uh, rec- downloading uh, the Criterion Collection, and they've lowered their paywall. And the film I'm gonna recommend is 1997's The Watermelon Woman, uh, directed by uh, Cheryl Dunay. And I'm also recommending this for a specific reason, because with everything that's going on, I don't. I think it's important that, we've heard, uh, that we don't forget that it's Pride Month. This is the story of a young black lesbian filmmaker who probes the life of the watermelon woman, a 1930s black actress who played Mammy archetypes. Now this sounds serious, but here's the here's the catch. It's actually kind of a romantic comedy. So, wow. so it's a little bit a uh, little bit lighter viewing uh, from what we've had, and uh, but at the same time, it touches a lot. I think coming from her and her voice, it touches a lot different um, subsections of our society and culture that people right now should be giving some credence and some attention to. And on top of it, it's a little bit like that's cool. awesome. And we're getting some people to go into the Criterion Collection, which is always a win. Okay, so the Criterion Collection, so everyone knows, with your streaming, you know, whatever device you use, you have to get the Criterion Collection app. But once you're there, like Mike said, they've lowered their paywall. For some select filmmakers, yeah. For some filmmakers, so that you can seek out The Watermelon Woman and you can watch that free of charge. And again, it's a comedy. Guys, we gotta laugh too sometimes, (laughs) so yes. No, I appreciate that. Thanks, Mike. that's been our episode so check out the edge of democracy on netflix and let us know what you think in the comments section on facebook next week our guest will be actress jessica annunziata make sure you follow us on social media you'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode until next time this was film grain